For more information on how Sense can help your business grow, go to sense-network.co.uk. Hi, my name's Phil Young. In this podcast, I talk to Jonathan Newell, who's a PI broker for IFA ProShore, about the PI market, what's been happening recently, uh, a little bit of history around it, um, why it functions the way which it does, um, and a general chat about what the future might hold for PI. First thing I'd like to ask you, Jonathan, is um, just to give us a quick background as to who you are uh, and what it is that you do. Yes, of course, Phil. So um, I run IFA ProShore, which was established in August 2009, and it specialises in the provision of professional indemnity insurance and specifically um, for IFAs and financial planners. And so and we deal with um, the market's very small, which we'll obviously touch on and get into more detail as um, we go throughout this conversation. Um, and uh, we've got a very uh, small niche book of um, clients that we look after very well. And, yeah, so far the, the market is difficult. Again, that's something which we're going to touch on later. Um, but, no, look, I'm very much uh, like looking after our clients and their needs for uh, professional indemnity. I think, I think it's fair to say, I mean, I've known, I've known you for longer um, than I think in your in, in the in sort of days gone by in businesses in in the past you've you've been acting mm. as a as a broker for do you want to say how many embarrassing years you've been you've been doing this? Oh wow well, okay it's so twenty years for me I started to lose count. Yeah, so I fell into insurance as one does when I left school at eighteen and I think we've probably had contact directly Phil since two thousand and maybe two thousand and one. Probably, so, yeah. a long time, a long time. I'm so old. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, I think it's useful as a bit of context because we've both been been working in the same market, which is predominantly yeah, providing services to financial advisors for mm. for a long time now. And, and as a result, you, you see a lot of different. Uh, you see some change in the market. You see some real cycles, and I think we'll come on to those in the PI market in particular. But you also see an awful lot of things that haven't really changed over the years as well. Um, yes. Do you want to give us a quick overview as to what's happening in the in the PI market as you see it at the moment? Um, and I think it'd be useful just to set it into context. Obviously, professional indemnity insurance doesn't just cover financial advisors. You know, that's that's kind of what we're, we'll spend most of our time talking about. Mm. You've got solicitors, accountants, other professions in the mix as well. What's, what's the market been like for, for everybody else out there over over recent years and where we are at the moment? Okay, so it's quite interesting. I'll, I'll get on to some of the broader sort of economic factors that affect market cycles more generally. But if we just concentrate on PI, and as you say, Phil, when, we, when I talk about PI, I'm referring to all lines of professions, whether it be solicitors, architects, accountants, whoever it may be, what's happened in the last quarter of 18, Lloyds of London, um, in rudimentary terms, is the London-based regulator for a vast wave of uh, London-based insurance companies, uh, undertook a thematic review of their syndicates, and to their horror, uh, they discovered that non-US, so stripping out um, uh, United States, they discovered that non-US professional indemnity insurance has generated the London market uh, losses roughly of about £450 million in the last six years alone. So 
So as a consequence of this thematic review, Lloyds of London, being the regulator, as I, as I just touched on, um, obviously did a, a massive drains-up exercise on the market, uh, as a consequence of which several insurers were either forced to or voluntarily withdrew from PI altogether. So since late 18, there's probably six or seven insurance companies which pulled out as a result of that thematic review. And what you find is the ones who are left have had their business plans scrutinized um, very, very heavily. And what you also get as a consequence of some insurers pulling out of the market, you've got a simple supply and demand issue. Um, so there's fewer insurers and you've got the usual economic consequences of that occurring as well. So there's lots of things sort of compounding on each other at the moment, um, which is making the market very difficult. So PI across the board is going up as a matter of course, um, and, and other sectors um, are very susceptible to PI increases. Um, architects in particular are perhaps going through a, a tough time at the moment, uh, predominantly as a result of the Glenfell fire. Um, that, so big cladding issues which are happening there, mm-hmm. um, which are causing headaches um, across the market. So the background to PI and where we are at the moment, it's a bit of a watershed moment. And I haven't really seen Lloyd's do a thematic review like this before. So it's quite unique in its set of circumstances. We're seeing the regulator really flex its muscles and it's you know, trickling down more feels like it's cascading at the moment uh, into a, a really hard market. And current sentiment is, with my ear to the ground, speaking to some uh, other underwriters that are in the market, that this isn't over yet. Um, there's a, a concern that Lloyds may come in again and uh, do a second drains-up exercise. So there's, a, there's a, a, an idea or a perception that this is just phase one and phase two is yet to happen. So by no means are we through the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination, um, given, the, as I say, the rhetoric that I'm, that I'm hearing on the ground. So it's a difficult marketplace without a doubt. It's something that uh, resonates. I had a chat with, uh, with an insolvency practitioner um, probably about a month ago now, and, and, and he, he told me that a lot of the business that they picked up of late was merging law firms together. I think most people mm. would assume that law firms are emerging because of just the economic pressures on being a law firm generally and then sort of you know, things going on in the market. Um, but it seems like there's, a, I mean, his, his steer was an awful lot more than you'd think were, were merging just because of an inability to get PI cover or get it at a reasonable price. So, it does seem to be something from from what I picked up now, and I, I wouldn't have spotted this in the past. That's that's affecting all professions, um, mm. not necessarily just uh, financial advisors. Of course, we we're dealing with financial advisors. How how is that market sort of viewed in relation to the rest of them? You already mentioned uh, accountants struggling specifically because of um, of Grenfell and the like. Is there a particular view on on the the, the financial advisory market at the moment? Well, yes. I mean, unfortunately, the, the financial advisor market, from a PI perspective, um, the view of underwriters in the past has always been a bit prejudiced to the market, I suppose, predominantly because it's perceived that the regulator um, can be a bit unpredictable and the regulator can impose liability, which is really quite different to every other profession. 
every other profession that we've just touched on, it's a lot easier to trend and model the claims experiences coming out of those particular sectors. So with the FCA involved and the powers that they have, it makes IFAs in the financial services sector much more difficult to predict and model and trend out uh, from an actuarial point of view. So it's, it's quite hazardous. It's viewed as a hazardous class of business. And unfortunately, what compounds that, and more recently I'll get onto the Fossil World Limit, but what compounds that is that the FOS themselves, um, there's a, a conception that, um, that the FOS are quite arbitrary in their decision-making methods and that they are fundamentally consumer-biased as well. Uh, whereas the PI insurer, I have no doubt, would be a lot more comfortable defending their IFA clients in a court of law where decisions on complaints are made on facts and made on law, whereas the FOS tend to make their decision based on what they consider to be reasonable. So there's a real disconnect um, between the IFA sector and other professions in terms of how complaints are considered. Um, and also, there's also <laughs> our statistics and analysis suggest that having a compliant FCA file, or rather a file that's compliant in the eyes of the FCA, unfortunately does not translate into a, um, a defendable complaint in front of the FOS. Okay, so that's, that's a real bugbear. There's a disconnect there between the regulator and uh, the arbiter um, at, at complaint, on the complaint side of things. So it's, um, it's difficult for those, for those very reasons. Um, what we also see in, in terms of, uh, or in times rather, of economic turmoil, the financial services sector seems to be the sharp end of that. So if there's a downturn in stock markets, um, people start making complaints. So the IFA sector is really sensitive to um, economic issues as well. So there's loads of other factors which is circling around this particular industry, which is make it very difficult um, to navigate through and successfully underwrite. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tricky. Compared to other professions, it's probably one of the most difficult to underwrite around, purely if, because it's just so unpredictable. If You mentioned um, the Financial Ombudsman Service. Um, hmm. Would you, just sort of going back to one of the points that you made, do you think that it would be easier to predict and to model out from your perspective if the ombudsman worked on a precedent basis like a court of law does as opposed to basing it on on reasonable you know to all intents and purposes an ombudsman can make a decision um based on what they think is fair and reasonable on this particular case without having to refer back to to precedents mm. and things like that as you don't recall a lot but i would imagine it's also a lot cheaper um, to run a you know, to run an ombudsman service without having to have um, all of the bureaucracy and infrastructure that's in place with uh, a court law and lawyers being involved mm. and all those sorts of things. So, is it an element of swings and roundabouts, or do you think it would make a significant difference? No, I think it would make a significant difference because if you've got precedent, as you would see in a court of law, um, the sands aren't going to shift so much. So it it removes that unpredictability. And it takes that out of the, the equation. So if we have a, a case before the FOS and they uphold for a particular reason, um, at least we can loop that back 
into the underwriting process. The, the insurers can loop that back and underwrite around the particular issue um, and ask relevant questions at underwriting triage stage to make sure they're assessing the risk appropriately. Um, so, yeah, absolutely agree with you, Phil. If, if there was precedent used within FOS, whether we agree or disagree with the precedent is another issue altogether. But at least um, um, there is a precedent that we can refer to and um, adapt to going forward. So, yeah, I entirely agree. That's a good idea. Do you think that would encourage, encourage more capacity, more insurers in, back into the market as well? That's a broader question. So, again, with my ear to the ground, speaking to various underwriters, the feedback I'm getting is that no one's really that interested in writing new business at this particular moment in time. So because of the business plan issue uh, with Lloyd's tearing up those business plans and rewriting them effectively for the insurers and telling them you're doing it this way or no way, you're seeing probably, um, and this is this is arbitrary numbers that I'm throwing about here, but um, you're seeing probably PI insurers culling their book of business by 20 or 30 percent in terms of policy count. But at the same time, premium income is increasing by 30 or 40 percent just by standing still and culling their book purely on the back of the significant rate increases that they're securing. So their their overall aggregate exposure that they're exposing them to in terms of number of policies written is reducing and their premium in income is increasing, which is great for them. So there's no real um, desire or um, economic reason why they would want to start underwriting more business at this particular moment in time. But at the market's cyclical, um, and I'm sure that, that, time will, that, that time will change. Um, but as we sit here today, um, it's, a, it's a real difficult are to get insurers to contemplate underwriting new areas of business which already come with preconceived ideas of being particularly hazardous, where, where they are managing otherwise to be um, cutting their book of business, as I say, and increasing premium income. So there's not really that desire to expose themselves beyond where they currently are at the moment. I remember, um, we, we kind of referred back to the early noughties, I think around 2002, 2003, um, that mm. was when I remember the market being at its worst in, in kind of my memory. Uh, there were a lot of firms out there that, I mean, PI premiums were were, were on, the, on the rise. It, mm. Most notably, there were a lot of exclusions placed on, on premiums. Mm. And a lot of it was around, I'm trying to remember, it was things like VCTs, EISs, I remember. Structured um, products was a big hot all the stuff that had gone on sort of in the, yeah, sort of years gone by as well for it. But um, the, the, the nub of it was there was a real panic on at that point in time to try and get cover in the first place. A lot of firms going to the FCA, applying for waivers, um, people, people effectively self-insuring. But, you know, I don't think things have moved on that much. Most small, most advice firms are small businesses with relatively brittle balance sheets. Um, do you think we're heading towards that that kind of a, a position again, or is it not quite as bad as that? No, I, I think we are. I mean, especially when we talk about um, DB transfers, that that's a real uh, hot spot for insurers at the moment, as you can imagine, given yeah. the, the narrative that's coming out from the regulator on, on that particular issue. And combine that with 
um, the FOS award limit jumping up to £350,000 and looping that back into the arbitrary decision-making methods. It's, um, it's causing yeah, the, the PR market a, a real particular headache. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I do think we're probably heading into it. If, if not, we're probably already there, to be honest with you, Phil. A, yeah. a real, very, very difficult uh, space in the market. Definitely. I mean, correct. I, I tend to hear the, you know, as per usual, you hear all the bad news. You don't hear somebody saying, I just had my PI renewed and it was, you know, it's the same as it was last year quite so much. Um, but I've, I've, I've picked up on firms where the, the PI has, has kind of quadrupled. It might be five times the premium um, that it was. Mm. And I've seen, I've heard people quoting excesses of, of 50, 100,000 pounds where they've got DB liability mm. on the books. Uh, is that something that you're? Is that is that right, or are that is that are those real outliers, or is this a, this a real a real scenario at the moment? So certainly, the underwriter that we deal with, they take a risk-based approach as to how they uh, assess their clients and specifically their DB exposures within the book. But I have, like you, heard those stories within the market that um, firms are having to carry one hundred thousand pound plus excess and paying big premiums. So certainly some of the DA firms that we look after, they are experiencing big hikes in premium if they've got mm -hmm. uh, DB exposure. Absolutely. We're certainly not seeing big hikes in the excess. Um, we're, what, what our insurer is doing um, is trying to underwrite around the issue and, as I say, may take a risk-based approach to their assessment of, the, of a firm's DB exposure, whereby maybe an insurer... Some insurers may take a more rudimentary stance and just say, right, okay, we'll just quadruple the premium and put the excess up to £100,000 and cross our fingers. Um, so it really depends on how knowledgeable the insurer is um, within the market, I suppose, and what their experience is as well. So it's a one-size-fits-all approach to underwriting doesn't really apply. Different insurers have different ways and methodologies as though they underwrite around the hazardous risks that they perceive how how precise can that be you know realistically as a as an underwriter um mm. you're obviously not you know you're not sat in a firm you're not assessing individual cases you've got to take a view as to what the level of risk of that of that business mm. might be in certain kind of high level indicators i mean there's obviously backwards looking stuff like looking at the complaints history and seeing what's coming through and that's inevitably going to be probably the biggest uh, thing that's going to influence it. But in terms of trying to think further forward, and I think most people acknowledge that DB transfers was going to be a problem at some point further down the line. Um, with all, you know, history tells us that this was going to inevitably going to be a, end up with um, with some issues. What, what, re what, what, can, what can firms do and what can underwriters do realistically to try and help manage the situation and manage that premium going forward? Very, very good question because I suppose looking at the complaints data, it's not mature enough, I don't believe. Um, I, I don't think we're far enough into pension, post-pension freedoms to really um, look back at uh, the false complaints data and identify any particular trends. But that's something which underwriters have, do, of course, uh, undertake. Um, so a, a lot of this is actuarial modelling. So underwriters are taking the view um, or oh, sorry, the actuaries who sit behind the underwriters are, are modelling this out and, and taking the view that this could be a sort of a catastrophe 
for the book. So a bit like in the same way a property underwriter may um, consider insuring all the properties on a Caribbean island, if the wind blows in the right direction, all of those buildings are going to be destroyed. And that's the kind of cat modelling that I'm referring to. So, and it's very rare that you see that kind of modelling applied to professional negligence insurance. But that's the approach underwriters uh, and their actuaries are taking because they are petrified fundamentally of the FCA rolling out a past business review, which they've seen before. So it's not necessarily that underwriters knew that DB transfers were a hotspot when when they came uh, to the forefront post-pension freedoms. I think we all recognize that. And underwriters do a good job underwriting around the issues, asking the, the right questions at the right times. The issue is, I suppose, the catastrophe-type scenario where the FCA rolls out a thematic review and all the narrative that is coming out from the FCA isn't doing anything to placate those fears. Okay. Yeah. So it's um, the underwriters can underwrite a firm and we can ask all the right questions and we can only get a certain level of comfort. But beyond that, it's a kind of a step into the unknown because we just don't know what the regulator is going to do. And, and that's where the real fear rests. So all, certainly all the firms that we look at, um, including all the sense guys, um, you know, what they've got fantastic processes and we really buy into those processes and we know or we have a higher degree of certainty that when faced with a complaint, we, we're on a, we've got a strong file to help uh, defend those IFAs in front of the FOS. Setting aside the arbitrary nature of FOS, that was another conversation. That's, it is what it is. We can only get a certain level of comfort. It's, it's, the, it's the proverbial floodgates opening if there's a thematic past business review, which is scary. And it's not just the compensation payouts, to be honest with you, Phil, that, that worry. It's the sheer administrative cost of, of handling those claims um, across the, a, a, an insurer's portfolio. Um, so I don't know if an, insur- an insurer's got... Um, a thousand insurers, and amongst those thousand insurers, there's a portfolio of 10,000 DB transfers to administer just purely to administer those complaints. Forget about the, any potential payouts; is going to cost millions of pounds. So that that's the concern. Um, I mean, it sounds it's it's a little bit self-serving to to make the statement. It sounds as though that third-party verification, whether it's by a network or, or compliance provider, whoever it is, goes some mm. way to kind of giving you a degree of comfort that there's a second pair of eyes that's independent of the Hugely, yeah. And we've even, we've, yeah, yeah. We've, in fact, consulted with that with some lawyers as well, and, and they agree. So uh, using solicitors as um, an, an analogy here, what, what we did see in the solicitors market, I mean, it's not something which I've done for a long time, solicitors, so um, I can't profess to be an expert in that field, but... From a PI standpoint, there was a time where you sort of asked the question within the proposal form whether um, a person's work was peer-reviewed within the firm. And invariably, yes, it was, but it will be peer-reviewed by a junior member of staff who feels compelled to agree with his boss's decision. Um, and it wasn't particularly fair, um, a fair process um, to go through. So, yes, we PI insurers, or certainly our PI insurer and who... who you guys are with massively buy into the concept that having a second pair of eyes by a firm who is appropriately qualified 
and has no vested interest in the outcome of the advice adds a huge layer of um, comfort insofar as ensuring that DB transfer or ensuring that firm's book of DB transfers most, most definitely. And the, the, I mean, it sounds as though the way that things are working at the moment, that the PI market is set to continue in these, in these cycles that that, that we have. Uh, that, yeah, the market yes. and then softening and, and all the rest. Of it. I guess in any market, um, there's always peaks and troughs of activity along the way. But um, is there anything we've, we've talked about the um, waving a magic wand and, and basically setting the you know, changing the way in which the ombudsman works to work on on precedents, uh, like mm. the court, uh, that like as the courts do. Is there anything else that you think could be changed within either within the regulator, with the FCA, or with the ombudsman that would actually help smooth these things out and uh, and, ma- and make life easier both for advisors purchasing PI insurance mm. as well as as well as the, the underwriters? Yeah, so, so I think the FCA could help. Um, Going back to the, the fear factor of a thematic review, for example, what insurers hate is uncertainty. Okay, so that that's their that's their nemesis. Um, any insurer's greatest fear is having uncertainty, and this is why it's so difficult for the IFA sector. Going back to what I touched on earlier, um, having a regulator that can impose liability on an IFA. So, if, if the FCA could um, come out with some more comfort as to what their position is on, uh, for example, DB transfers or indeed any other particular hotspots that are that come on their agenda as they invariably do down the future, down the line, then it's all based underwriting to a large degree is based on confidence and if there's a confidence that the regulator isn't going to roll out a thematic review for example, then I could foresee that in translating into a more relaxed in speech marks, sort of underwriting approach. Um, yes, so I think the regulator um, can certainly help in that regard. This hard market, by the way, Phil, does feel different to other hard markets because okay. it's it's um, it's been perpetuated by the regulator, by Lloyd's, really, by Lloyd's of London, rather than a specific event. So there's lots of things which create market cycles and the hardening and softening of rates. Um, most of them are really economic-based, either economic or political. Um, and, and Brexit's a, a, a key indicator as well. I mean, the, the, the perceived increased operating costs, depending on uh, how Brexit falls, is, is a big thing. I know on insurers' agendas as well. Terrorism is a big thing on insurers' agendas. So going back to the, the Twin Towers, that was the last time where markets or the insurance market reacted um, and you'll learn that that probably feeds back into that period, Phil, uh, in 2002-2003 when we saw rates massively go up. We also see rates go up um, in, sorry, a softening of the market rather when um, in a low interest um, environment as well. Um, big financial institutions aren't getting the returns that they usually get. And I think this is where, we, where we're coming out of now. We're coming out of an environment, arguably, from a low interest rate world um, and in a low interest rate world, financial institutions pull their money out of their usual um, safe havens and put them into insurance companies. So you find that a situation where insurance companies have got lots of capacity, um, so they just start underwriting business because they've got the ability and the headroom to do so. So there's too much capacity and too much competitiveness across the market, and rates go down and they start spiraling down. And just so, and, and rates keep at that level 
market share. And sometimes, obviously, that's not a great thing, but again, this is how markets fundamentally work. But the way, the reason I think this hard market is different is because of the intervention of Lloyd's. And this is the first time we've really seen Lloyd's come in this hard and fast um, to make sure everyone pulls their socks up. So, yes, it's a hard market, but conversely, I think there's an argument to say the market has been too soft and it's just a natural correction of what we've of what's happened over over the last few years. Yeah, that, that was that was what I was going to ask you next. You know, do, do you think effectively we're, you know, we're talking, we're viewing this as basically being a real hardening of the market and things are getting tough? Do you think it's actually just starting to get? It's just been a little bit too soft. Uh, yes. and, the, and the reality was probably somewhere in the middle. Um, and this yes. feels quite yes. so, but in reality, it's um, it's not as big a, a leap as it should have been. Yeah, yeah exactly. In, in real terms, it's, it feels like a massive leap um, where rates are going at the moment purely because they were far too um, they were far too low before. So there is a correction occurring, and I think that correction is going to continue. Um, for the short term, at the very least, but what you probably see and hope to see is for that to plateau. But I don't expect the market to um, go back to where it was um, 12 months ago. I can't see that happening anytime soon. But you, you never know. I haven't got a crystal ball. But um, th- this market does feel it does feel very different. If um, I mean, if you kind of start to think about the scenarios that it's starting to drive as well, you know, we we know that right now there are a number of firms out there that are struggling to get PI cover full stop um, because they've got a reasonable exposure to DB uh, work on the books and they can't get, you know, there's, there's not enough interest in, in, in insurers out there to, to bring more more of that kind of liability onto their own books at the moment. Um what concerns me in some respects is that I, I can't see a way that this doesn't end up going on to the FSCS unless mm-hmm. the um, – and uh, well, even if um, the FCA decide to be a little bit more innovative about this and, and be more flexible about how this is dealt with going further forward just because I've seen a number of, um, a number of asset um, purchases recently where it's been – it's been businesses that are now in distress because of DB transfers on the market have just sold the business to, to somebody else. I've seen people shopping around trying to find uh, other businesses to to effectively take the liability on or, or even uh, effectively looking at Phoenix in one way or another. Um, mm. But unless you allow those advisors to continue advising and to find and to, to continue to look after those clients, that the, the liability is going to go onto the FSCS one way or another. My yeah. fear is that without without the, the the business or the certainly the advisors continuing to advise those advise, uh, clients that that were were transferred going further forward, um, mm-hmm. and certainly with GDPR now in place, so the files kind of disappear. I guess uh, there's no one really around to defend a complaint when it comes in. It feels a little bit like cannon fodder for the um, for the very heavily capitalised claims management companies that are out there now twiddling the thumbs post PPI claims that are starting to dry up that will eventually train the guns on this. I think I don't think we've got quite got there yet because, as you say, it tends to take five years plus for investment related complaints to start to mature and to come through in volumes but we mm. can't be far off the point where claims management companies start to see 
these businesses go bust or and 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 see them as being soft targets to make a claim, albeit going through the FSCS as opposed to a firm's mm. PI cover. So longer term, um, the, surely the FSCS levies are likely to go up as well, unless there's some kind of action or something that's put in place to to, to come up with an answer for it, one way or another. No, yeah, I agree entirely. I think today I picked up on a headline. I haven't read the article in detail, but the chief of the FSCS is already calling for their payouts to be uh, to be increased as well. Yeah. So, and, and what you end up with is the good guys paying for the bad, uh, fundamentally. So, I, I agree that this is a sort of a wider regulatory issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and I, I suppose there's a certain irony, to a degree, um, that if if, if the regulator is creating uncertainty in the PI market for the reason that we've just discussed, and as a consequence of that, an IFA can't get uh, PI insurance, and as a consequence of that, the IFA has to close down their business, the only person really that loses out here is the consumer um, at the end of the day. So perhaps there's a certain irony here in terms of the FCA not being perhaps entirely aware of the consequences of their actions, I suppose, is an argument that you could, I don't know, I think you could de- definitely thrash that out and put some more meat yeah. on, on that on that conversation. It, it, that seems to be the direction of travel that we're heading. That, that's my overall concern at the moment, that the market is going to become increasingly dysfunctional. Um, mm. No... The liability is going to just wash onto the FSCS regardless of, of what happens because if you've not got any PI cover in place, you know, the, the amount of self-insurance, the amount of, uh, that you can you can buffer yourself against a number of claims is is pretty negligible. It's a it's a very short-term answer to it. And I just I just see that situation where there's a fu- there's a much larger scale problem, particularly if advisors aren't able to to continue to look after those clients and the claims management companies can get the teeth into them. I can just see that this being a, a real free-for-all that spirals out of control. We have yeah. managed to depress ourselves and uh, on, a, on a slightly more positive note to try and reel it back in a little bit again. Is there a, if I asked you to come up with sort of like maybe two or three tips or things that you think um, an advice firm can do right now that will help there will we'll help with their PI insurance ongoing. What what would those be? What are the kind of common problems that you see and things that people should just, things that they could put right that will help themselves in the longer term with PI? Okay, so certainly embracing compliance as, as much as they possibly can and using third parties to help with that function um, and, and going back to that point that we discussed earlier, the second pair of eyes um, idea, um, I think insurers love that concept uh, generally. Um, just to be really open and as transparent as you can possibly be with your insurer. Um, share as much information about your business uh, as you possibly can. Um, I would also uh, suggest, I mean, some insurers like meeting their clients. Um, so certainly see how, in, how engaged your insurer is. Um, with that, as I say, you get lots of insurers who just view it at very high-level statistical basis, and you get those insurers who like to understand a lot more about the individual clients and the profile of the clients that they're that they're looking after. So, 
perhaps do your due diligence on the insurer that you're that you're going for. And, and invariably, the cheapest insurers who are out there, not that we're in a cheap environment at the moment, but we have been, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to a point where they will be to get there again at some point in the future. But invariably, the cheapest insurers are just chasing premium for premium's sake, and they don't really hang about for too much longer because losses soon manifest and underwriting deficits um, outstrip premium incomes and, and they go pop. So just really do your due diligence on the insurer. Make sure they've been in the market a long time. Make sure they, they know their onions um, and they, they, they appreciate the, um, the difficulties with the regulator and the unpredictable nature of, of the FCA and FOS. So those are real key things. Um, any, anything a firm can demonstrate as to how um, they keep records, uh, client records, really key okay so the only the only information that we have to help an IFA defend a complaint at FOS is the, is the client record uh, is the client file rather and as more detailed as that is and as more thorough as that is the better even going down to getting clients to sign suitability letters um, it's all very well sending one but this is those small little details just add extra small little layers of of defence arguments that can be thrown out if needed uh, later down the line. Telephone calls, really simple things. Telephone calls, if they're recorded, if, if they haven't got the software to record those telephone calls, don't necessarily make a file note. You can do, that's really good, but make the file note but turn it into a, communi a communication that you send on to the client um, because it, it makes it a lot more credible and you've got a, a much thorough audit trail that's on your file. So, yeah, so the, the client's doc documentation's key. Client agree with it and, and confirm that that's accurate as well. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, unfortunately, I, the way I see the market is um, it's, it's a regulatory problem that needs to be fixed rather yeah. than a PI issue. Uh, the, PI, the PI market is just, it's very reactionary. It just reacts to what the regulator is doing and it reacts to what the FOS is doing. So, and, and the market just acts normally. So, and, and therefore, the consequences of regulator and FOS equals what happens in the PI market and is translated into policy terms, conditions, exclusions, and premiums. So, I, I don't think we can fix it at that end of the market. It, um, it's the, as I say, it's, I think it's the broader regulatory framework, FCA, FOS, and FSCS, and how those three interact with each other. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you for uh, sharing all of that with us. I find it absolutely fascinating, if a tad bleak at times. Um, and uh, you're somebody that's been in the market for a good a good long time. You, you most certainly, in, in your own words, know your onions. And I think most advice businesses out there should gain a great deal of comfort from that. Um, so I will thank you for, for your time once more and um, uh, speak to you again in due course. Will do, Phil. Thank you very much indeed. Great talking to you. Sense. At home, at work and on the road.